Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Farm One podcast. I'm sitting here in Tribeca in Farm One. You may be able to hear the sounds of hydroponics and plumbing and lights and fans uh, around me. I'm joined by my good friend, Jess Carroll. He's the director of technology at Farm One. How's it going, Jess? It's going great. Nice. Okay, good. Uh, and also with Michael Chin, he's our VP of corporate development over in Maryland. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing well. Hi, everyone. Nice. So uh, what's everyone up to? What are you up to, Jess? Um, not much. You know, I uh, baked a lot this weekend with my girlfriend and we were following recipes from a book called Dessert Person by Claire Saffitz, I think is how you pronounce it. The, the recipes in that book are incredibly amazing. And there's so many useful helps, uh, helpful hints and like things to, to teach you about how to be a better baker. It's I'd highly recommend that book, especially okay. probably during this season where it's nice to turn on the oven and keep your house warm that way. Yeah, yeah. What did you bake then? Uh, we baked a um, flourless chocolate cake and okay. a um, almond butter banana bread. Both of them were stellar. Wow. Thanks for bringing that in today. <laughs> he didn't bring it in. It sounds delicious. <laughs> she sounds has good. a new YouTube channel as well. It's, it's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, What's the name again? Claire Saffitz. Saffitz. Okay, very cool. I'll check it out. Um, I've been reading, um, what's it called? Complete Jump. I've been reading this book called Ministry for the Future. It's by a guy called Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a sci-fi book about, um, essentially about climate change. And it, it kind of starts off with this really kind of scary scenario, which I think a lot of us have sort of heard about the potential for, which is when the so-called wet bulb temperature goes above 35 degrees Celsius. I don't know, is that like 108 Fahrenheit maybe? Uh, where the body can no longer cool itself down through perspiration. And so staying outside in that temperature is essentially fatal. And so uh, this book kind of goes into, you know, these sequence of events around the future and global warming and a team of people that are trying to do some pretty radical things to combat global warming, like some geoengineering projects you know, uh, seeding uh, clouds with certain substances, maybe changing the way the glaciers uh, melt and this kind of thing. I, I really like it. I think it's like a, a good example of how to communicate the dangers of global warming, which can seem a little bit distant. Uh, but to do that in a sort of sci-fi way with, with a bit of like a thriller element to them, uh, I'm really enjoying it. It's called Ministry for the Future. Uh, what about you, Michael? What are you up to? Well, I started reading uh, President Obama's uh, new memoirs, Promised Land. Uh, well, I was reading it through a, an audiobook app uh, that I use, and it's 29 hours long. This might be a record for me in terms of uh, the length of a book, but it's great. He's reading it himself, um, so it's kind of fun to listen to him kind of tell his story with his voice and everything. It's uh, I'm about halfway through. Uh, we're just past the uh, uh, passing of the ACA through Congress. So, uh, but but it, it, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to hear him tell the story of his life and and his administration so far, uh, and and kind of his thinking behind uh, a lot of the policies that they were trying to achieve and and everything else. Nice. He's got such a soothing voice as well. I imagine it's a very relaxing experience to just be, you know, listening, I've, listening to Barack Obama all day. I've heard that um, the type of language that he is uh, using today 
is starting to more closely resemble like how he actually is versus when he was president where there was a bit of a disconnect between um, his day-to-day -day kind of language and um, what he was presenting through huh. through his presidency. In what way, like is his language getting more approachable or less? Because like, people accused him of being like an academic sometimes. Right, yeah, they, I, like, I think a bit more real and more colloquial kind of thing. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, maybe it's well, a bit more relaxing when you don't have the pressures of being the head of government of the United right. States. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I could I could get that. Um, so today we brought Jess on because we're going to talk about a, a couple of things in the news and, and topics around sustainability that we thought Jess would be, you know, a good expert around. So what's going on, Michael? What's in the news this week that you want to talk about? Okay, so in the news today, I've got a couple of articles for us to talk about. Um, starting with an article from Bloomberg uh, that came out this morning. The title is California Water Futures Begin Trading Amid Fear of Scarcity. Uh, the article starts with the lead paragraph, water joint gold, oil, and other commodities traded on Wall Street, highlighting worries that the life-sustaining natural resource may become scarce across more of the world. So. On the surface, Wall Street apparently is celebrating all of this, um, but farmers, hedge funds, and municipalities alike are now able to hedge against or bet on water, future water availability in California, the biggest US agriculture market and world's fifth largest economy. So this is the first time it's been done in the US. And the article cites that it was announced in September as heat and wildfires ravaged the US West Coast and as California was emerging from an eight-year drought. Uh, the futures are meant to serve both as a hedge for big water consumers, such as almond farmers and electric utilities, against water prices, fluctuations, as well as scarcity as a scarcity gauge for investors worldwide. So I get that Wall Street's celebrating this. On the other side of it, it does seem like a bit of a problem for us. If uh, we're at a point where water is traded as, as a commodity that's as rare as gold um, and oil. But um, maybe a good place to start is to talk about the, um, the implications of this on agriculture. I mean, obviously, uh, for farmers, and, and they talk about this in the article, it's hard for them to even predict the cost of water in six months. Uh, or to factor that into their operations. So economically, obviously, it's a big problem. But maybe we can start by unpacking this whole thing with, you know, what, what are the links here, guys, between water scarcity, what's happening on the West Coast, all of the fires that we've been seeing every year now, uh, the drought and, uh, and, and, and where we are today? Well, what are the links there? Yeah, I think so. You know, taking a step back and like looking at history, um, there's some really interesting research that they've looked at um, climate patterns and, and precipitation patterns through analyzing tree, tree ring data. And um, the, you know, good weather, fortunate weather for agriculture has allowed um, civilizations to prosper. I think in one case in Angkor, Cambodia, um, they realized that the downfall of their civilization was changing weather patterns and inability to produce enough food to, to support the, you know, um, society. Um, you know, today our agricultural production is globalized and much more resilient than it was, um, in, you know, way back then. But I think, you know, there is a element of 
what's happening, which is a part of natural vari variability that occurs with weather patterns. And then there's also this additional layer of um, anthropogenic forcing on our um, climate. And so what happens basically as weather gets, or as temperatures increase, and we, you know, there's clear data that shows that, of course, uh, our greenhouse gases are contributing to increased temperatures. The carrying capacity of the air, it can hold more water than if the temperatures are less. So in general, what this means is you're gonna have longer periods of dryness and heavier rains. And so, and, you know, there's a lot of complexity with local or regional weather systems, but in general, um, the increased temperatures we're gonna be facing are gonna cause more droughts in some areas. And in other areas, maybe like in the Northeast United States, more rain. Um, and so I think in California, there is a mix between um, an issue that is brought on by climate change, an issue that is part of a natural cycle of um, a fluctuation in precipitation and temperature, and also an issue of management of water resources. Agriculture in the United States is used, uses more water than industrial or residential purposes. Um, in California, there's a kind of old system of pumping and a lot of losses, and um, it's, it's not effectively managed. And, you know, uh, forests in the area are um, becoming more fragmented, which is impacting, um, you know, water flows and storages and of water. Um, so, you know, the problem is really immense. And I think the fact that um, there's a mechanism for farmers to potentially hedge against uh, water shortages could be a good thing for them. But for many farmers, you know, they've chosen that area to grow that crop because the climate was well adapted to growing that crop. So for instance, almond, almond farmers have chosen areas of, the, of California to grow almonds that, um, you know, had been suitable environments for that. But as, you know, uh, precipitation changes, as temperature increases, as CO2 levels increase, um, the agricultural productivity of a region for a certain crop is going to change. And it's not like an almond farmer can just buy another piece of land somewhere. Those crops last like more than 20 years. And so it's significant for them to have to abandon their, their fields to move elsewhere because it's a long time before they can start generating revenue again. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if you take the case of almonds as well, it now adds additional complexity to a lot of consumer choices, right? Because um, consumers are confronted with a message that says dairy, traditional cow's milk, uh, has a huge greenhouse gas implication to it, which it does. And then a lot of the time, the default alternative to dairy is going to be almond milk when you have a huge water implication to that choice as a consumer as well. So it just puts us back into this situation again where the consumer is forced to choose between two evils. Uh, as it turns out, you know, there are other plant-based milk options like oat milk and soy milk, which considerate considerably less impactful uh, to the environment. But now, you know, it's it's just yet another thing where it's like, okay, that thing you thought was better is not better. Um, and yeah, as, as Jess is saying, you know, these almond farmers, it's not like they can just literally just get up and go somewhere else. That's not the case. And even if they do, you know, that almond crop, again, is still heavily, uh, a heavy consumer of water. Um, and so I think, you know, you can imagine over the next 15 to 20 years, um, you know, maybe almonds, you know, price of almonds goes up, but also maybe they become less prevalent as a sort of source of plant-based milk, I think. 
I think, you know, it also speaks to this sense that for so long we have depended on California to just give us a bounty. It's been the breadbasket of the nation. Um, and people have just made assumptions that that's going to keep on going. And it's clearly not. You know, on the one hand, there's going to be more and more regulation of use of water and the price of water is obviously going to go up. Um, on the other hand, you're going to also see uh, rival technologies for agriculture, such as vertical farming, such as increased use of indoor farming uh, in other areas. That's hopefully going to take some pressure off California uh, to be the, the source of all these kinds of food crops. And then I, I guess the other thing that I think is interesting here, which is maybe sort of like it's scary, but it needs to happen, is increasing um, pricing of natural resources. You know, instead of having this world where we consider all of this nature's bounty to be effectively free for us to use, we're starting to put a price on different things, such as water, potentially one day air, potentially carbon, you know, all these kind of things. Um, and it is scary. It's scary that water sort of is traded in this way and seen it, but, it, but it's also a mechanism for companies for agriculture as an industry to have to, you know, take into account the, the resources that it's using effectively for free um, and also eventually the externalities that it's causing. So, you know, I think that over time it's, it's inevitable, you know, within our capitalist society, it's inevitable that we start to price more and more of these things and people sort of have to pay for them. And, and as a consumer, a lot of that cost may be passed on to the consumer so that your pint of almond milk may actually if everything was priced correctly, may be twice as expensive or, or something like that if, if water was taken into account. Yeah, I think there is a really um, deep connection between the values of the people consuming the food and the producers that are creating the food because both um, aspects are, or both environments are deeply dependent on one another. So I think if consumers, um, you know, tend toward thinking about sustainability and water use in their purchasing decisions, those values will also be reflected in the producers. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of the time it's it's just so difficult as a consumer to even understand the implications of your choice. And, you know, if you take salad as an example, you often have to look pretty hard to see where is that salad coming from? Uh, and then you got to do your own research to figure out like, oh, is that a sustainable source of water or whatever? Um, and so, yeah, I think I think what you're also going to see is new companies tending to maybe respond to that desire by the consumer to know this stuff so that the label is more clear and, and it's more upfront. Uh, certainly, you know, we as a company are trying to sort of do that thing where you know where your product is coming from, you know, and the, the implications of that. And, and I think that's just going to become more and more commonplace. And having a label which doesn't clearly tell you what's going on is going to become less and less acceptable, I guess. Yeah, it's an interesting theme that seems to have come up quite a bit in the past eight or so episodes of this podcast that when we talk about news or any of these topics, um, we do, it does feel like we're at a pretty significant, or at least it feels from, from where I'm sitting, inflection point for consumers. I mean, the American consumer, like we've talked about in the past is, you know, we're, we're so used to abundance. We're so used to this um, food systems that's optimized for efficiency. Well, some of us are in, in American society where, you know, it's wherever you, whatever you want, whenever you want it, uh, with an expiration date that pops up and you don't think twice of, of just throwing it out, uh, anything that's unused, um, and, and not even thinking about it. Um, but certainly it does feel like we're, 
we're going to be facing some real realities and yeah pricing that in um you know could 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 be a good thing for us to really understand um I, I suppose the true value of what we're consuming and and what we're being wasteful about um this second story though is also really interesting um it's in uh civileats.com and um it's uh it's about a farmer in martinez california in the bay area and uh, her farm is called coco sense sustainable farm and the title of the article is is farming with reclaimed water the solution to a drier future and it talks about um uh, the farmer carolyn finney uh, she acquired a, a small bit of land from contra costa county uh, it was about an acre and when she acquired this land to start farming on it, uh, her 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 reason for doing it was because of food access and her local schools, um, where she had read um, the school was serving more pizza than they were vegetables and greens. So you know it's a pretty common common story around the country, I think. And um, she wanted to do something about it, and she found this piece of land, and it was sitting vacant. It was a, a dumping ground for the for the county, and she was able to acquire it for a dollar a year from the county. Um, you know, prior to her farming it, it was just this terrible piece of land that was, uh, uh, you know, almost no nutrients in the dirt. Weeds were barely growing on it, that type of thing. But it was sitting next to a water processing plant in uh, Contra Costa County. And they were um, using that plant to uh, essentially recycle water, right? So they were taking your, your uh, used water uh, out of the system, running it through their various processes. And um, the, the land was sort of used as a, um, a sanitary uh, 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 buffer uh, out, of this, out of this water station. And what they realized was even though they were cleaning out all of the microbes and, and it was going through all of the processing, um, the reclaimed wastewater was, was actually really nutrient rich. Um, and uh, it started yielding a, a pretty productive plant. And um, so I, I thought this was really interesting, right? Because on the one hand, you know, there are a number of different ways that we can go about the water scarcity issue. Um, but, uh, you know, th this seems to be an interesting solution in that, you know, we're taking technology, we're applying it to water, um, you know, the, we're using wastewater anyway in California for landscaping, and it's been approved for agricultural purposes. They've done studies uh, in the 80s and, and where they looked at a five-year period where they were using wastewater and they saw that um, it wasn't harmful to the crops. The crops were performing well. Um, so, you know, this, this is proving to be an interesting uh, solution. Um, you know, I grew up in Singapore. Water scarcity has been a big problem, you know, for the existence of the country. And they started using this as well. They called it gray water. And of course, everyone had a chuckle, you know, when you were getting your, your bottled uh, reclaimed water, you know, you're drinking poop water in the time. Um, but yeah, what do you guys think of uh, our ability to scale solutions like this, especially in urban farming? Yeah, I mean, just to, you know, start off from the the abstract, I think that when you hear stories about this, what, you, what you're really seeing is, is people trying to keep nutrients, trying to keep value in the system instead of those nutrients, you know, getting pushed out to sea or essentially being dumped, maybe ending up in landfill. What you're trying to do is keep those nutrients in the system. It's, 
it's like a principle of the circular economy, right? It's not like not losing value. We saw that last week with renewable, which is trying to use uh, food waste processed into hydroponic nutrients. Uh, you see it, you know, in the plastics circular economy where people are trying to have reusables and, and keep things in the system. And so I think you're, you're trying to see it here and you're going to see it more and more with things like water or, you know, agricultural waste even. Um, there's there's things that essentially like are a bit icky to process. And so instinctively as a society, we let other people sort of deal with them and we push them, we throw them down the garbage chute, all that kind of thing. But there's real value there. And I think as we become more conscious about the limitation of resource in the world and as we become uh, able to price some of these things, if you think about it, you know, if you can price this, then someone's probably going to buy it. There's a market for it. You're going to see more and more of these kind of solutions. So in the abstract, I think it just fits into a, a great trend there. And I think Jess might be able to talk in a more educated way about like the uh, whether these farms are kind of scalable, who's able to do this um, and kind of bring these technologies to a bigger uh, playing field. Yeah, I, I, well, it sounds like a really great um, application of a circular economy type um, agriculture. Um, I think, you know, even in cities around the world, even if, you know, all the rooftop spaces and uh, vacant lots are turned into urban farms, you still you still require in order to feed the city um, more agricultural output than than that can produce. Um, you know, not to say that we shouldn't try it and we shouldn't do that. I think it's really important and it, it you know, um, provides a lot of other co-benefits besides just the food production itself. In, um, you know, in California, there are, it's a very highly managed water system and a lot of the water um, that flows into urban areas, um, you know, wouldn't flow back to the fields. And so, it's, you know, requires a significant amount of energy and um, not, there's probably not even enough wastewater in order to, to uh, fertilize and irrigate the amount of uh, land that's being irrigated currently in California. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it's like everything that we've talked about, it's a multi-pronged solution that we need. And this is a small piece of uh, the puzzle that sounds like really important and, and and innovative, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Yeah, I'd love to see a, a lot more investment go into this area um, from from you know the, the people that are looking at ag tech and food tech, um, and and to think about it a lot more holistically uh, in terms of what they're investing in, as opposed to you know the latest delivery robot and and that type of thing, which everyone seems to get excited about. Um, but the, the other part of it, too, is, um, you know, one of the problems I always hear from urban farmers is, you know, they have a hard time even explaining what an urban farm is to their local, uh, you know, county or city government and that type of thing. And it'd be great to see sanitation departments, city governments, um, you know, take a serious look at this as a way to, you know, address not just the water problem, but their food problem. Um, you know, the, the environment and, and really, you know, the circular economy and everything else and, and look at it just a lot more holistically. It seems like, you know, in all the conversations we have, there's so many touch points to this um, that, that it's going to require, uh, you know, all parties to, to really think it through end to end. So, Yeah, I think um, it's interesting that, you know, up until now, basically, um, well, not 
starting, you know, in the early 1900s, like cities have been able to scale basically endlessly because um, agricultural supply for the city was more was not the limiting factor. And it still isn't um, for cities, but sustainability is becoming a limiting factor for the growth of, of our population and for cities um, in particular, especially as um, more people move into cities. So I think these solutions that for, for agriculture that incorporate sustainability are going to be critical in order for us to you know, continue growing and, and living on, on this planet. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, you know, we're trying to be part of that. I think I think you're seeing, you know, uh, folks who are maybe larger than us, more established, like Gotham Greens, you know, who are using rooftop greenhouses. You're seeing other you're seeing other vertical farming companies. Uh, and then there's folks, you know, doing things that are very, very useful on a small scale in community gardens, just composting you know, taking food scraps, putting that back into the earth. And so there's many, many different ways of doing this, I think. And, you know, I totally agree with what Jess is saying is that, you know, the more this way of thinking sort of starts to get embedded into the city planning, into people creating legislation for cities, into people who are creating tax incentives, subsidies, all this kind of stuff, the more circular economy thinking comes into cities, the more that cities can start to sort of um, you know, reuse and, and understand their own footprint better, which should, you know, it's going to take a long time, but will reduce pressure on specific areas of the country like California that at the moment are sort of lifting, you know, with all the produce um, around the country. So, uh, so yeah, it's going to take a long time, but I think these are the right sort of things to see. And I love it. I love it when we see them. Yep. Well, thanks, Michael. Yeah, we'll have the uh, links to the articles uh, as usual in the comments. So have a read. Yeah, cool. And uh, we'll have another episode next week. We're trying to, we're, as you can tell, we're sort of getting into a routine now with the podcast. We're doing some news. We're doing some longer form interviews. Uh, we've got some some interviews coming up in the new year that I think are going to be really great with some farmers, with some sustainability folks, with food folks as well. And if you've got ideas for people who you'd like us to talk to, um, we'd love to hear it because, you know, uh, let's, let's listen to what you guys are thinking as well. Um, until then, uh, we're going to have a busy week on the farm. Uh, as you know, we're signing up people to become, uh, founding members for our new farm that we're going to be building in Brooklyn. Uh, Jess and I are sort of in the middle of talking to engineers and architecty people and trying to plan out that space and trying to get it ready in time. Uh, it's going to be tight, but we think we can... Uh, get construction going uh, during January and get growing maybe during February. Uh, we will see, watch this space. Uh, you know, everything everything is uh, dependent on a lot of different things, but we're, we're building out that new farm. Uh, the reason we're doing that is that we've really reached capacity here in Tribeca um, and we want more space. And also we're gonna be offering more things to go along with that subscription as well. So if you haven't checked that out yet, if you're living in New York City, I really encourage you to sign up now because there's a long waiting list now. Um, which is great, uh, but it also means if you don't sign up very quickly, you will have to wait many, many months to get your produce. Um, so please check that out. That's just at farm.one. Uh, keep listening to the podcast. If you haven't already liked and subscribed, do that. There's going to be a graphic here that's going to say that. Yeah, Jess, point at it. Um, and uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing your feedback and we look forward to you uh, listening and watching to more episodes of the podcast. Uh, that's it. We'll see you next week. Bye.